Hello and welcome everybody to Season 2, Episode 2 of GraphQL Radio. Today we're here with Jason Kurt, tech lead at Prisma and widely known in the GraphQL community for all of his open source work around Nexus and a bunch of other stuff as well. We're really excited to talk to him today. My name is Max Stoiber. I am one of the co-founders of GraphCDN, the GraphQL CDN, and I'm here with my co-host, Abby Iyer. Abby, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey everyone, welcome to Episode 2. I'm Abby, uh, currently a principal engineer at Gatsby, but you already knew that. Uh, today, <laughs> we are so excited to have Jason on the show here. We're going to get into a lot of topics today, and they're all going to be very interesting. But as always, when we start off our show, we want to know more about our, our guest. And so, Jason, can you kind of take us down memory lane and uh, kind of tell us some like the relevant career history that got you to where you are today? Uh, so I've been at Prisma for two years. Prior to that, I was at various startups. I was in New York City for a little bit at this company called Little Bits, which was like a hardware, software, mostly hardware, sort of modular circuitry kit kind of uh, place. And But I actually did my studies way back in design and sort of got myself into programming sort of gradually. So my journey's been sort of self-taught and uh, very much open source has been a big part of my career um, as how I've just picked up the craft. I think I was coming into the space of like with an interest when Node and GitHub were still nascent. And so I think those two, uh, I kind of was getting into jQuery and like using WordPress to kind of put up things and try different projects. And this was still, you know, overlapping with my university time. And then Node kind of came up and I remember watching some of Ryan's early talks when he was in Berlin, I think one of his first two or three talks. And it was like, okay, I can, I kind of know JavaScript. There's this jQuery thing. And now I can kind of use some of that to do something on the back end and just sort of fell really gradually and organically through that path of yeah, Node. And, and that's how kind of I got more and more into to backend. These days, I haven't done as much uh, client for quite a few years, but I actually, uh, some trivia did create the original uh, React Meetup in New York City when I was there, and we picked it up really early at Little Bits, but definitely have uh, moved on towards other things than, than client these days. Did you originally study something like computer science at uni, or, or how did you get into this whole programming thing in the first place? Like, What even made you interested in that? Yeah, so I was in a multidisciplinary uh, design program. The degree was in the fine arts category, right? So it was, it was fairly liberal and fairly sort of driven you know, through both like sort of social interventions, but also a lot of how do you feel about something and, and why tackle it in that way. So there wasn't a lot of like hard objectivity necessarily to, to all the work all the time. But, you know, as a multidisciplinary program, there was, you know, there's industrial design tracks and graphic design tracks, but there was also sort of like a digital track. And this was like, this was like when ActionScript was in the heyday, right? So um, ActionScript and Flash, and uh, there was a lot of multimedia kind of work going on. And so programming was something we did as a, just, it was like, it's just another material that we had to use to realize uh, our work. And so there were programming classes we would do, and we worked with uh, processing uh, as, uh, which was like compiling to Java, which was by Ben Fry and uh, Casey Rias. So there was sort of these sort of creative programming aspects to some of some classes for that and things. And a lot of our projects ended up needing, you know, usually some kind of dimension of motion or, or interactivity or web or whatever. And this was sort of before mobile had really taken off with like iOS. And, and like, I think we had like maybe version two of the iPhone, but it was it was still really web based uh, back then. And uh, yeah, so I think being in that sort of multidisciplinary intersection of Yes, there's a lot of visual and design aspects being worked out, but it was always on the screen somehow, usually. And so um, that, that was really the, the exposure I got. That's really cool. It's a really interesting path. Like I feel like that path for your tooling from jQuery to React to Node kind of led a lot of us to the GraphQL ecosystem. You know, uh, as things were developing, and you know, let's get a little nostalgic here. Like, how have you seen the GraphQL community and technology change since you joined the community? It's been, it's been a pretty big journey. I remember when Facebook first announced GraphQL, and I believe it was possibly at the same time they announced Relay. It was kind of a joint presentation, or maybe there was like a conference and they both were presented at it. And I can't quite remember, but it was definitely around the same time, if nothing else. And, you know, this was coming somewhat on the heels of React now being taken seriously, right? Pete Hunt was back then kind of the, the face of React uh, for some time. And Facebook open source was, was just like killing it. And there was this sense that, you know, they had sort of done something really important on how we can build apps in a sort of predictable and more rapid way. So so there was sort of this already credibility on the table. And then when they came with the sort of, hey, we've, we've thought about the data layer too. 
it was like, oh my God, like, please tell me more. And I think it was, it was a really receptive platform, I think, for that. And it came at a really interesting time where I think everyone was really like looking like it was yeah just the time and the time of that i think was maybe 2015 or something like that it was really well i think positioned in the industry since then i think there's you know been sort of a a lot of maturity in the space but also like quite a bit of stability more than you might expect for something as new as graphql and so i remember early on looking at some of the later maybe like 2017 or something there was this talk talking about like defer and stream and live and some of these other directives. And it seemed like, wow, these are huge things that are, are like going to fundamentally change GraphQL. And it turned out like they didn't actually happen overnight, right? Like some of those parts are just starting to, to land uh, in the spec today. And turns out that like, you know, implementing live is, is, you know, requires a lot more thought than just being, hey, here's a directive. And so I think what we got, you know, years ago on the spec level and kind of what we saw with, and here's what a query looks like. A lot of that, I think, has been pretty much crystallized already from when Facebook started to make it public. But the community, of course, I think is where a lot of innovation has happened. Libraries, I mean, maybe we'll get into Nexus on like the Node side of things, right? But of course, you have other languages like Scala or Ruby or, or Java or whatever. And that's probably where I see mo- more of the movement, I guess, over the last few years. I'm super excited that like input types will finally have unions in the nearer future now. Like that's that's so long time coming for at least... Uh, us at Prisma, um, we had kind of a GraphQL pl- like plus plus thing where on our side we were had like a version of GraphQL at some point in the stack where we allowed input unions, but we couldn't kind of like expose that at one point in the, back in like our Prisma one GraphQL days. Yeah, it's I think it's a space where GraphQL was clearly thought through and was released in sort of Facebook fashion at that time, where they had done something internal, used it internally, prove it internally. The world saw it and it wasn't actually like being thrown over the fence as this, you know, tell us what you think this might work or might not. Like they were throwing something very confidently over the fence. Uh, and that's why I think it hasn't necessarily needed to sort of change so much over the years. Um, yeah. And I think the community is probably where, where the focus is on on sort of the, the more rapid kind of change. With that in mind, where do you see GraphQL headed next? Has it just like stabilized in the state now and the community is also kind of like found its innovations and is using that or where where do you think it's going next what are the things that you're keeping an eye on as you're looking out at the community but also at of course the technical steering committee and graphical itself like what do you what do you think are the big innovations that are going to come that's super interesting i feel like you know the answer probably depends a lot on where your point of view on GraphQL is like, do you use it to build internal APIs, microservices? Are you building a public API like Shopify or, you know, GitHub? You know, there's some very different constraints in those different sort of realms. You know, our use case at Prisma right now is for the, the Prisma data platform. And so this is sort of an API for a first party app that then we also build. And it's like kind of a, maybe a classical use case, right? And I think we don't worry about things like query complexity, right? We don't worry about sort of having to sanitize or worry, you know, like query depth. Like, so, so there's a sort of categories there where, I'm just not dealing with those that that problem space. The type system of GraphQL has always been super interesting as it's like what what does that enable in sort of a, like a, from a tooling point of view, full stack, you know, generating generating clients, um, having persistent queries, like all this stuff is is really interesting. But it's you know there's like it's it's really nice that the spec is moving forward on certain specifics around like the input unions and I believe like defer and stream are like coming together now and that's that's sort of returning the page there. I'm not super like close on sort of what sort of less developed sort of proposed specs are and, and I don't want to attend like the technical committee meetings and stuff. I've, I've been to one uh, or two, but but it's not something I generally do. So there might be like some really far out stuff that is you know maybe on the roadmap or potentially on the roadmap. But what I see sort of more down to the ground where I am is sort of a continued simplification of the sort of full stack work with GraphQL, where it's still a bit of a stretch for teams to just put the whole end to end together. And so things like Hasira have like, you know, lowered the bar there, but there tends to be a lot of like strings attached to like, how does this fit into my project? Or if I, you know, like with GraphQL, for example, you know, it made GraphQL APIs pretty trivial, but like you also felt if you project, you, you always were like, okay, I'll use this until X day. And then I'm going to just have to eject and, you know, do something that's more custom. And so this sort of like balance between leveraging GraphQL in the way you want without taking on complexity you don't want. Like there's like this sort of sweet spot that I think we're all still looking for. So the libraries and, and sort of the frameworks and the maturity around that, I think are pretty important. And we'll see where that's going. You know, internally at Prisma as the data platform gets larger, there will be a discussion, I'm, I'm almost certain, about internally, what kind of RPC protocol do we want to use? Do we want to maybe explore what Federation looks like uh, in our stack from Apollo? Do just gRPC and, and sort of not 
use uh, GraphQL internally and just treat it as the, the gateway API to the whole platform, but not how we talk internally. I think a lot of that will come down to decisions around what's the like the, the path of least resistance. If gRPC is just the easier kind of way to quickly put up microservices and have you know strong typing, good performance, good monitoring, it's just out of the box makes you move faster. Then that's that maybe will be more dominant to the extent that we can get GraphQL as a community just lowering the bar more and more. And I think of like you know GraphCDN is like an example of this as a as a product that is lowering the bar for like. I have performance concerns about putting up my GraphQL API or like, like as the community, both some open source perspective, but commercially, you know, evolves. I think that's, that's like the biggest area right now. I think of, of innovation is lowering the barrier to entry. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the gRPC piece because at GitHub, when I was at GitHub, many people know that GitHub has an external GraphQL API, right? That's very famously well known. They have a huge GraphQL API that people can use. But what many people don't know is they have an internal GraphQL API as well. And it's basically an extension of the external one. So they take the external one and they add everything else, right? And they use it as a layer internally. They have a, I'm, and I'm, I wasn't too much in that part of the organization, but they have like a sort of microservice architecture and they use it for service to service communication. And it broke down because the GraphQL schema got way too big. Like we're talking hundreds of thousands of types, as far as I know, right? Like it's an insanely big GraphQL schema. And I remember somebody once sent a screenshot into an internal chat where it was like the GraphQL Voyager Explorer, right? Like with like the node interface with all of those types. And the thing just crashed, first of all. But then when it rendered, it was so big that you couldn't see anything. And they realized that it just stopped working for that use case. And they actually switched to, I don't know if they eventually switched, but they, they started using Twerp for some of the newer pieces. And I remember them making that decision, which I thought was really interesting. Now, this is again, this is already two years out of date, so... Well, you, you, but you also bring up a really interesting point where I think a lot of emphasis probably should be put on the schema design itself. Like there's so much effort there uh, and variability and mileage you can like you can you can get out of GraphQL depending on how you just model your domain. And I think that's a really interesting area. I mean, we have similar problems like anyone in their in their stack, right, with the database. And so, how do I do that? And then sometimes you get kind of caught up in incidentals, right? Like, okay, well, I'm using a relational database, and it's kind of gonna push me towards this design, which is not necessarily how I model it in my head, but like that's the sort of the implementation aspect. Like I think the graph aspect of GraphQL is probably one of the most exciting parts for me about it because from a data modeling perspective, it just lends itself very organically to say, oh, there's all these relationships. I want to defer how, you know, things are linking up. I don't want to make that decision, you know, prematurely. So I'm just going to allow those, you know, allow these relationships, put them out and the client gets to kind of get those access patterns. But it turns out that, you know, in any sufficiently, like even in non, somewhat non-trivial applications, even in sort of trivial applications, it's not too hard to start coming up like, oh, how do I model this? Like, should this be an object or is it a, is it a list? In this object, could it be a scalar or should I like kind of nest and maybe plan for like, you know, future expansion. And if you get into polymorphism, right, like there's interfaces and unions and representing things there can can quickly become, you know, non-trivial. So I think the schema design is, is an interesting area where it's like, we as a community, it's not even really about tools. I mean, maybe there'll be tools that support, you know, enforcing patterns or, or, or valid, like linting, you know, there might be areas there where tooling helps, but figuring out just data modeling, it's almost like an art. It is a very it's a very soft skill that I think the more we can share and learn as a community about how to represent domains and what are like, you know, this pattern, it's bad, but you're only going to figure that out in six months or like a year. And, and this is the problems you're going to have. But it's very difficult to explain that in a quick, you know, see that problem initially. And uh, so the more we share yeah. is super useful for schema design. Yeah, there, there's no gang of four on uh, GraphQL right now. There's recommendations and people have opinions, right? But there's no like standardization on how to build products and model your schemas the right way. It's an interesting point that you made about schema design because it's really the, the path to success to any project you work on is having a really strong schema. But when your company gets bigger, it gets even more important because that's how you're going to communicate with another team, which is that joint schema or shared schema. So I think tooling will help, but also smart people that are in the community like yourself making the solid opinions that then get uh, kind of like curated and kind of enforced, you know. I think right now every team does it a little differently. 
The interesting thing is that we've spoken with quite a lot of particularly big companies and a lot of them are using Apollo Federation, right? That's really found a lot of adoption in like companies where you have many engineering teams, right? We were talking to companies that have 14, 20, maybe even more engineering teams. And of course, at that point, Apollo Federation makes total sense and is a great solution for some problems, but it leads to some problems down the line. And one of the big ones that always gets mentioned is schema design, schema governance, right? Now you have 20 engineering teams adding stuff to the schema. How do you make sure it doesn't overlap? How do you make sure everything in the right place? How do you make sure it's consistent? How do you make sure all of these, you run into all of these troubles later on that where it's like, yes, you've, you've solved your original problem, but now you have this whole other set of problems that I know Apollo is also working on solving, of course, and helping these people with, but you open up a whole can of worms that you previously also had, but is now a lot more pronounced. Well, it's, it's more accessible too, right? To write a GraphQL schema is so easy and it becomes like a language thing or like a political thing or like a, a governance thing, you know? Yeah. Do we camel case stuff or not? Like things like that kind of introduce a whole set of new problems, but they're not like, they're human problems. They're not really technical problems at that point. In the Ruby GraphQL library, there's this like, concept of the schema visibility. And I've always been intrigued and it's been on my like to-do list forever to eventually just look at what what sort of the patterns that people use schema visibility for in the Ruby community with that feature of the library. And, you know, what, what are the trade-offs of like, you actually get sort of slightly different, maybe significantly different view on a schema, depending on sort of who you are. Like, I'm not, yeah, I'd be curious to look more to the use cases of schema visibility, but it, it seems like yet another sort of dimension or black hole into schema design and sort of a, a specialization there. I mean, there are some teams that do schema approvals and like Git workflows like that too, right? So it's an interesting use case. You know, you mentioned you worked at Prisma and we said that many times now and you're working on essentially a product team or the data platform team. For the viewers, uh, what is Prisma at its core and then what team you're on and you're kind of like what's your team goals are and stuff like that. Absolutely. So Prisma is fundamentally trying to make data, the data layer better, right? So they have a storied history. Uh, we used to be called GraphCool. And then we had, we transitioned to Prisma and Prisma, they're sort of Prisma 1 and Prisma 2. And so Prisma 1 was itself kind of a, a worthy sort of milestone in that journey because it was a significantly kind of different product than Prisma 2 that we have today. And so sort of that journey looked basically like there was a hosted GraphQL kind of API you, you put in front of your database and you just, you could build apps and you just have this uh, sort of GraphQL API as your interface to data. That was great and people loved it, but it wasn't flexible enough to scale for sort of the use cases and business that Prisma saw wanting to, to move towards. So then Prisma 1 was an architecture where it's a bit more modular and you could put sort of this GraphQL API in front of your database as a separate service, so like in a Docker container or something. And this became sort of an architectural sort of part of your toolkit, but that proved to be fairly like complicated and heavy for a lot of users. And so sort of where it eventually landed was with Prisma 2, it's just an ORM, right? So you're in the same space as say like connects or type ORM uh, in the node space. And so you know, but there's some significant differences from it just being in like an ORM, like any other library. There is a Prisma schema, which has been there for a while now, and it's used to actually be GraphQL syntax. And, and at one point, the syntax that Prisma has moved to sort of a, a proprietary one. And this syntax just allows you to declare, hey, here's how the schema of my database looks. Um, and from that, you get a generated client that's specialized for your database, and it's completely type safe, and it's really a joy to use. So that's sort of one of the core parts of the toolkit um, is the Prisma client. Another part of the Prisma toolkit is a migration tool. And so that migration tools, you know, stemming again off this Prisma schema. And as you change that Prisma schema, you can use the migrate, which is a, like a CLI, and you can use that to deal with, hey, migrate my database from this version of the schema to another. And it does a lot of things along the way to help you there and like tells you if you're going to be data loss and, and guides you in sort of making sort of a successful journey across what is tends to be sort of non-trivial for a lot of developers. And so this sort of schema has become like a core of the toolkit and we're kind of Prisma's building, you know, more and more spokes around that. The data platform is sort of the newest big addition here. And unlike the other pieces that kind of you run as a developer on your machine, the data platform becomes more of like a hosted offering to support your workflows and support team collaboration, to support security related kind of aspects around hey, we have a project with a database and we do want collaborators, but maybe we want some read-only people to get access to the database. And so there's, you know, there's a, a very large set of potential like flows, use cases, and user journeys around this when it comes to the data layer, but in a team setting, that the data platform is there to sort of help bring Prisma to the next level. 
The ORM is amazing as a developer to build your applications and work with the database. And Migrate is great for sort of the operations of dealing with the data evolution. But the data platform basically sits there as sort of like, now now you need to collaborate, right? You're no longer just an individual hobbyist. And so this is sort of what Prisma is about. There's things on the roadmap for the Prisma data platform. Right now you can you can create a project that links to a GitHub repository. And then we kind of use that schema that's in your GitHub repository the Prisma schema, um, we are able to then bring that into your Prisma project. There's a data browser, there's a query console to so interact with your database. Um, you can invite collaborators, there's sort of different authorization rules. And there'll probably be in early 2022, some features around preview databases. Anyway, I won't commit to timelines, but in 2022, sort of how Versal has preview deployments for a branch in a, a GitHub pull request. Uh, imagine you basically open up that pull request and you just poof, you have a preview database uh, ready to go. Probably the biggest uh, use case right now is sort of the serverless story with data layer, which is pretty painful in practice when you go to production and you actually are ready to like, hey, you know, the world come use my app. It turns out there's some some gotchas. And so the connection pooling issues, one of the big ones where it turns out that the database with all these connections coming from different lambdas that have sort of undetermined uh, life cycles, right? They might be a hot lambda that's reused, but might be spun down and you get another lambda, but each lambda is making a connection to the database. And these are not necessarily designed originally to be sort of, you know, many of them. So if you, you get into cases where the database just being, it has too many connections because the lambdas are, there's too many lambdas scaling horizontally. So data proxy from Prisma, um, which you use through the data proxy is sort of a solution for people that want to deploy to serverless. So it's a good fit if you're got like a Versal app, say, or say Netlify, all, all sorts of these sort of uh, serverless space deployments. Data proxy sort of gives a, a really viable option there that fits nicely. If you're already using Prisma, like especially, it fits in really nicely, kind of seamlessly. I have to out myself here. And I maybe I should have mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, but I am a huge fan of Prisma and also Nexus. So basically of all of your work. <laughs> I've been using Prisma for pretty much exclusively for the past two, three years almost. And pretty much all of the GraphQL APIs I've been building have been built with Nexus, including, by the way, GraphCDN. GraphCDN is fully based on Prisma and Nexus. We have our own dashboard GraphQL API. And I've always wondered, you know, Prisma nowadays to me feels incredibly easy to use, right? I just type and, and I don't even have to think about it and I get my data. It's almost beautiful in a weird way, right? It, it, it's really, it's hard to explain, but when you're using it, it's just, it's just an amazing experience. And I can imagine that it wasn't easy to get there, right? So what were some of the learnings that you took from, you know, you were building this GraphQL as a service thing to transitioning into more of the ORM database layer to then transitioning from Prisma 1 to Prisma 2. What, what were some of the learnings that you took away that eventually resulted in this, at, at least from an outside perspective, beautiful design, even though I'm sure you're aware of all of its warts and faults and all the rough edges that people complain about? <laughs> I, yeah, I should probably mention I joined Prisma, I said, two years ago. And at that time, that was well underway with Prisma 2, but it hadn't been released yet. And then the team that was putting that together eventually shipped Prisma 2, I think it was in the spring of 20, 2020. And so maybe about six months after I joined. And they did amazing work and I wasn't really part of my, just wasn't part of my responsibility. So I came on to sort of work on the open source portfolio of Prisma. And then that eventually kind of focused down onto Nexus and then it became just Nexus. And then eventually I transitioned to the Prisma data platform. But so the client has always been amazing to see the team kind of evolve and work on that. And I think definitely, you know, learnings in that, that the company itself has had, I think already the journey I mentioned from GraphCool to Prisma 1 to Prisma 2, like that in itself has been a really grandiose learning, you know, path for everyone involved at the company. I think flexibility and meeting developers where they are and allowing them to, like part of what I think makes Prisma sort of magical, uh, or at least that we, we, we aim for that is you feel like you like there is a Prisma data platform. And of course, that starts to look more like a hosted option or some kind of hosted product commercial kind of piece that, that maybe starts to look, yeah, like how Hasira looks or, or something where it's like, okay, I've got to like log in and right. But I think that the Prisma client, it's really important to us that that remains a kind of open source pillar uh, that you can just NPM install. And like, there's no strings attached, but that this just is there like any other library. And I think that's, there's a magical feeling to just that independence of it's just another package. You don't have to sign in first to use it or any kind of, you know, it's just got that sort of, hey, I'm, I'm, we're just, we're like on the level playing field of any other NPM package. Um, and I think that's that's pretty core to that particular product, the Prisma client, you know, part of that 
we've made a lot of progress. Like it, it ends up working well in almost all cases. It's, it's really great work. And I know Tim, uh, who is no longer at Prisma, but uh, did a lot of amazing work on, on that before he left. And I think he was making patches to TypeScript compiler on the Microsoft repository there for, for TypeScript, right? To kind of get us over the, over the line on some features that we wanted to ship to users. And so the, there's been a lot of sweat, I would say, poured over just getting the types right and working. And that's, and I think that shows because it generally gets out of users' ways. There are still these cases and, and I'll report them since data, pl- you know, of course, the Prisma data platform is a consumer Prisma client, just like any other project out there. And so we, we get to sort of be the user side a lot of the time and we'll report back, hey, like, I kind of found a way to slip through the type system here when, you know, I added this field and then the return didn't quite honor, you know, the, the variable or something. So there's, there's kind of cracks in the types sometimes, but uh, I think we've done still a pretty good job in most cases and, uh, and we'll continue to improve those cracks, of course. But even even at this point, I think it, it works really well for, for most cases most and most users most of the time. I should have mentioned it too at the beginning of the show. I mean, I've been using GraphCool and I've known Johannes since GraphCool. It's been a long time. Uh, and Nicholas as well. But at Gatsby, when we first, start, first started to architect the cloud platform, we were using Prisma 1. We were probably like right when Prisma 2 came out, we were like, thank God. So we started putting that right in, into some of our microservices. The thing I loved about Prisma 2... Because like you still had the same nice client with a lot more features and you know indexing and all the great things you need, but it was I didn't have to deploy another separate piece of infrastructure, right? I didn't have to use a Helm chart to put a Prisma cluster. We used to call them Prisma clusters back in the day with our Prisma services inside them. Now you just uh, embed your client as a query engine, you deploy it with your service, and you call it a day. Yeah, I think that the query engine part is is probably one of the more magical parts that hopefully in most cases don't have to think about. And as far as I've seen, that's really the case. You know, that's, that's what our users for the most part tell us. And and that's what happens for us on the data platform. Like there is actually a Rust binary there running at runtime. Did you know? And like, I think in almost all cases, you don't need to know. And it's just there doing its job very quietly. The post install part with like the Prisma generate also just, just works. So there's been, and there's sort of these workflow parts that allow Nexus Prisma's unconventional architecture with how it's generated from your Prisma schema. So it has this aspect that most node modules, right, node packages don't have to deal with. There's been a lot of sweat with package managers and like the post install hooks and all this stuff. Just, yeah, it's doing some unconventional things, but that's not going to be your problem. And so getting to that point has been a lot of sweat over details, but I think in the end it's worth it, right? Because it it does for the most part. Yeah, for sure. Another package. For sure. And the way it was doing it before, it's just been such an innovation um, from Prisma 1. Uh, one other thing I'll say about Prisma is Johannes will break an API and he does not care. And I love that. You don't know how many times the schema has changed, migration CLI has changed, but every time it's changed, it's always been for the better. So you never think like, oh, why am I doing this breaking change? It's because I'm getting all this stuff for doing it. I don't know. You guys are very tactical when it comes to that. I love that. Yeah. So, and Johannes has been um, on the board now for like, he transitioned from CEO to, to just being a board member for now uh, a little bit over a year. And I think his, his impact on the company, you know, it's, though he's, he's been less hands-on, of course, than he used to be. I think he's laid like an amazing sort of foundation for the company to, to continue to evolve on. And, and CERN, who's now that was the CTO and now the CEO is, is continues to do an amazing job there. I would also add that like, it's interesting, this trade-off. So there was a lot of trepidation when Prisma 2 was went GA, the Prisma client went GA, right? Because there was this sense that we were maybe, okay, can we be as flexible as we used to be? Can we be as avant-garde as we used to be? And I think it's been a journey for the company to find that out. And so like one of the things that recently happened is it became SEMVAR compliant, right? So we, we, we admitted that we, we want the sweet spot to move a little bit more in the break and change direction, but we're going to do it in a principled way with SEMVAR and do that properly. So... We've mentioned it a few times now. It's come up like maybe a handful or maybe even a dozen times by now in this conversation. But for those of the people listening that don't know, what is Nexus? Where where does it come from? How does it work? And why does it exist? What does it do? Yeah, so Nexus was uh, originally created by Tim Greaser and it was picked up very early in its uh, design and implementation by Johannes at a conference who uh, saw the thing and the potential and was solving some of the type uh, safety problems of implementing a GraphQL API. So Nexus is a basically helps you implement the schema part of a GraphQL API in Node. Tim was basically really focused on the type safety part. And this was sort of at a time when Johannes was struggling to 
kind of figure out a good way to make TypeSafe APIs with sort of the Apollo um, schema first, wasn't just Apollo, but just generally the schema first approach. And that has to this day, I think still traction and merit, but basically there was just uh, an interest in having an alternative kind of code first approach. And so Nexus is a code first approach to building GraphQL APIs in Node and specifically just the schema part. So it doesn't force you down a server decision path. It doesn't prevent you from using GraphQL JS directly. Uh, you can still kind of, it really fits in to the community and the tools out there in a very kind of standard and, and standard compliant collaborative way. So it's not, it's not a framework. It's very focused as a library for the schema building part of GraphQL APIs. Like I said, I'm a big fan of Nexus as well, and I've used it a lot. And I, I think the thing that really appeals to me is the thing you just called out, which is the type safety. I write my code and every line is type checked and correct which is very difficult to get otherwise. If you write your GraphQL schema in a random .graphql file or in, in a, even in a string in your JavaScript, which I've seen before, then it's very difficult to get that type check correctly against your, your resolvers and to make sure that their inputs are valid and correct and what you would expect. And it's been a pleasure to work with for me. And in particular, I've really enjoyed the integration with Prisma, with the Nexus Prisma plugin. I would love to know where that came from and, and what you're working on, because I know you're working on a new version of that as well. Yeah, so we're, we're also dogfooding that in the, the Prisma data platform, and it's, it's a slow-moving library on the side, right? So it's not our kind of primary work, but we, we do consider it a kind of first-class kind of piece of work that, that does get proper product time and, and engineering time. And so, you know, Nexus being the schema-building part, but Prisma being the data layer part, right? There's a clear problem or rather opportunity in a lot of projects where what the, what's in the data layer is, you know, somehow being repeated in the API layer. Or if not repeated, certainly there's a strong relationship and there's maybe partial repetition and so on. And so what Nexus Prisma aims to do is take advantage of this, these two layers being uh, tightly coupled or, or even semi-coupled and allowing the developer to really speed up their velocity when it comes to saying, okay, I want, you know, I want this GraphQL object, or I want this GraphQL query field or mutation field, and I, I, need, I just want it to have some of the same fields that are already defined in the data layer. And I want, or I want it to have some of the same relationships that are already in uh, between my models in the data layer. Uh, so Nexus Prisma, is, is that, that's, that's why it exists, right? It's to, to try to speed up the kind of boilerplate and uh, project rather than repeat yourself, being able to just sort of project in a type safe way what's in the what's in the data layer to your API layer. We can definitely get into also the story there of the journey from Nexus Prisma one to Nexus Prisma two. It's still under the zero point uh, something or another semver, so they're not formally like this one two. But certainly from a community standpoint, there's kind of been a an older version, and now there's a rewrite. What are the biggest differences there? So the rewrite we've started. I want to say, yeah, it was actually this year, probably in February. And the differences and why the rewrite happened were centered around how the first version of Nexus Prisma is actually an amazing story because when Prisma Day came around, I think it was the 2019 Prisma Day, Flavion, who's an engineer at Prisma, uh, was at the time an intern. At the time, Nexus Prisma, uh, he put together kind of also a rewrite of its API in like one week or something. And, and it's like this like big tornado of code and this amazing thing popped out and users loved it. And it allowed uh, in particular for developers to automate the CRUD aspects in the API, right? So if you had wanted to create, update, delete, paginate, this kind of thing was being taken care of for you. And it really was like a pretty, I think for a lot of users, a very clear uh, velocity win. But it also, I think, was it moved so fast and kind of grew an adoption so quickly that sort of the finer points of well, what happens on like day two, day three, uh, I kind of need a bit of customization. I don't want this field to be, I don't want it, the password to be part of the, you know, the create in the API. So like, like details kind of became important at a certain point, right? So if you're doing like your day one, you're just getting something off the ground, it's fine. But it did sort of bring up a lot of questions around the API design. And there was always like a, a conflict around, is Nexus Prisma the tool you use for your first few weeks to kind of build a prototype and then you kind of move off it? Or is it something that we want to kind of evolve the API to kind of grow with your, with your project to any scale? And it, it didn't help that so there's like these very kind of existential complicated API questions. And then the other aspect was that Nexus Prisma at the time 
Uh, and to this day has never been like, you know, a sole product focus, right? It was always kind of like a side aspect. And so some of these like API questions were pretty tough to crack, first of all, but second of all, didn't necessarily have all the time that was needed to, to crack them. And the code base was like, you know, the people were forgetting why certain aspects were built the way they were. It was built quickly. Test coverage was there, but it wasn't as good as we wanted. And so when we came to round finally to this year, early in the winter, we kind of looked at it and we said, let's do something more modest and a little bit more slower and stable and just focus on quality and take some of the learnings from the first version and put that into sort of a new a new effort. And so I've been the main developer on the new one uh, since then. And we've uh, left CRUD, which was one of the big attractive features of the first uh, Nexus Prisma. We've left that off the table for now, and it's something we'll be interested to tackle in the future. But we, what we've done for now is to just really get projection of models really like tight and uh, stable and, and simple and flexible. So what that means is, yeah, when it comes to mutations or queries, well, particularly mutations, uh, when it comes to writing those, right now, next, the new Nexus Prisma doesn't really help you do that. On the other hand, the new API is, is really simple and really flexible to sort of, I think it's worth pointing out that, and we got this feedback when at first users were a little bit like nervous about this change. They said, you know, the first one's cool. Can you just kind of keep making that work? And then they'd be like, well, should I get off it uh, or should I wait? And we sort of have put the first one off of maintenance. So you can't really stay with it if you want to stay up to date with Prisma. So then some users were starting to say, okay, well, like what is, what, how bad kind of quote unquote is just vanilla Nexus with vanilla Prisma, right? Like how far can I just get with that? And it turned out a lot of users were actually pretty happy. Like it's actually also good. And that's been, I think, interesting to see where Nexus Prisma is, is kind of cool as it is. And we use it right on the Prisma data platform. I think it's not a panacea and like you can, I think, kind of prematurely like optimize toward it and just say, oh, it's going to solve all my problems. And then you, you kind of rely on it almost too much. And so that's because the type safety you get out of Prisma, which is very type safe at the data layer. And then Nexus is very type safe at the API layer. Like those work so well together. And then and now what I want, kind of how I see the new Nexus Prisma is just like a cherry on top that takes already what's working well together and just, just kind of makes it a little bit easier and a little bit better. And so the way that it's a little bit easier and a little bit better is that it's actually now sort of statically generated code, whereas the previous version was a Nexus plugin uh, and it was sort of more dynamic and at runtime. The new uh, Nexus Prisma is kind of like Prisma Client, right? It's like it shows up in your Prisma schema file, shows up as a generator, you run Prisma Generate, it spits out sort of static code that then gets read by, or spits out generated code that gets kind of integrated with the static code. There's like a small sort of static piece of runtime that's also shipping in Nexus Prisma. And so this is very similar to how Prisma Client works. And then as a user, you basically import, say, like, let's say you have a user model in your Prisma schema. Well, now you can import from Nexus Prisma a user, and then user can just be used to fill out the fields on a user object in Nexus. So basically, we were generating Nexus config statically of what you've defined uh, based on your Prisma schema. We include resolvers for, for relationships between, say, like a user and its comments or, or something like that. But let's say you, you want everything from a user object model. So you want to like project like the ID, you want to project the name and the email but then you want to add some more fields, you still have your Nexus object definition and you're just basically taking the, the static code and you're just using that to automate the implementation. And it's a little bit verbose in the sense that you, you still have like these line by lines, right? But at the end of the day, like what we found on Prisma Data Platform is the API is like, what's really important is just how stable it is, but like actually writing, like we don't write objects like every day, it's not changing, right? There's, there's something about the API it's more important for us to just have it be reliable, be flexible. If we need to get around a limitation of Nexus Prisma, we don't want it to get in the way, basically. So to the extent that it helps, that's great. But we never want it to be like, oh, I have to work around Nexus Prisma now, which was often the case for the previous version. So the new one is it's really important to us that it's always able to layer on top benefit, but never, ever be like in the way of you just shipping the exact API that you want. I think the really powerful thing that sticks out to me in all of that is you're evolving it based on actually using it. And I think a lot of people might not appreciate that, right? You you have all these people building libraries, but never actually really using them. And that means they don't really realize which impact their API decisions 
have, but you're really you're using this for the Prisma data platform. You're using it every single day, even if you're not adding an object every day, right? You're certainly working on the API, and so you're very aware of all these fine trade-offs that you're making between the magic that you had in version one and now maybe the little bit less magic, but more flexibility and, and more extensibility in version two, and that's beautiful. Yeah, things get real when your products start scaling and more engineers start joining your team. Start getting new perspectives that kind of influence the origin of where you know you wrote certain code in. So really cool to see for sure. There's another Nexus library, right? There's like a Nexus result library. What's the deal with that one? So Nexus, yeah, I think it's called Nexus-result-field, if I remember correctly. And that came out of you know, work in the Prisma data platform, but more from our application layer. So it didn't start off as a library the way Nexus Prisma did. From right, It really kind of grew out of, oh, we've got this code in our application layer and like, wouldn't it be nice if it was better tested and more modular and like we just shared it with the open source community. That's been, I think, out for maybe a month or two now. And it's not like the biggest thing ever, right? It, it, I think in terms of line of code, I mean, it's I think a few hundred lines of code. So, you know, it has a very modest scope, it has a very specific problem it's solving. And what, the, what it's about is making it easy to have fields, typically query or mutation fields, that are what we call result fields, which may not be a standard term. So you may, may hear this referred to it in different ways in, in different uh, conversations. But what we think of a result field as is when you're querying for something, you might pass in an ID and you might get that thing back. Um, but you might get what's sort of equivalent to, a, say, a 404. And that might be a null in a lot of people's schemas, right? They might say, you can get this thing back, but it's it's nullable. That works in a lot of cases, of course, and it's fine. But where the result field kind of becomes handy is what happens when sort of the reason something is null can, can actually have a lot of semantic possibilities, right? The reason it's null is, well, yeah, it wasn't found. Oh, no, you actually you don't have authorized, you're not authorized, or so on and so on, right? So null gets you, is, is definitely always a solution there. But if you want to be able to start communicating a bit more in your schema and coding a bit more semantics, the result field can be nice there. So what it ends up happening is instead of a, a nullable, say, user, you get a union of, hey, you have the user or you have these other possible objects. And those possible other objects would typically be sort of the failure of, like failure cases, and they'd be typed uh, specifically with, with something that went wrong. The user is not necessarily the best example. I think like on the data platform, for example, we have a mutation that allows you to link a database to an environment and environments inside of a project. And when you link a database, there's a variety of things there that need to be done before we consider it valid, right? And those are things the client can opt into with the API. But just to give you an example, uh, linking a database can require that you check, hey, is this database reachable? Is this database empty? Um, would you like this database to be seeded and, and have a schema pushed? So there's a lot of like aspects there in that mutation. It's not just about, hey, take a connection string and just put it in the database. It's a very rich mutation that has a lot of business logic around it. And in that mutation, it may come out successful, but it may come out with a variety of failures. So we have sort of three, we think of failures in sort of three categories. There's, there's the sort of, we call them client, client input errors, client business errors, and there's unknown errors. And so the three groups are the basis for some interfaces in our GraphQL schema. So they're sort of, they're not just apps, like they're not just in our minds, they're actually in the, the system. Here's how they're different. Client input errors are essentially, if, if you get back this error, uh, you, you have a query that will never succeed. Um, and so some cases you can encode this with anyways, custom scalers, right? So um, right now, like we're considering, for instance, adding a custom handler, uh, sorry, a custom uh, scaler for handles, which are sort of like, Basically, names that have very specific rules, right? There's they have to be sort of slugs, basically, and so there's and there's like there's length limits and there's character constraints and, and various things. So we're thinking, okay, maybe it's worth putting, and this shows up in a lot of places in the schema. This sort of handle concept. We're thinking, okay, maybe we'll, we'll create a custom scaler for this. But it, it's a bit of a balance. Like, should you make go crazy with custom scalers and put them everywhere? I, I think, in, yeah, there's still like a lot of cases where they don't even fit. So an example would be like we have. A couple parts in the API where you, you can, um, and this might change once input unions are in, in GraphQL, but for the time being, you'll have, say, an input where you can then do sort of a nested mutation. You can connect or create some kind of nested resource, but you can't do both, right? So it's like either you have to either connect or create. So it has to be one, but they're mutually exclusive. So if you put both, that's also an error. And so that kind of check, right, is hard, you can't really capture that with a custom scaler. It's really something you're just going to do in your resolver and you're going to say, nope, this is like, this is an invalid input. And so that would be a client input error category. And so anytime you get anyway an error of this category, basically you, it's kind of like in the same way that uh, if you get a type error from the Prisma, from the GraphQL API, if you get, 
it specs a string and you put a number, any, anything like that, right? Like you, you have a query that will never succeed. And then there's just basically some sort of dynamic extensions, if you will, where there's some ways in which you can send a query which will, will never succeed, not because of the sort of static type system, but because of sort of a dynamic check, right? Like I said, the connecting query. If you put both those fields, you'll never, ever, ever have a successful query. So that's, a, that's one category of error. And we put those into the schema. And that would be some examples of error types that might be in the union of the result. Then there's client business errors. And those are a bit more interesting because a lot of the client input errors, they, they'll be caught at test time, right? Like if we ship a front end that is hitting a client input error, that's kind of silly because that basically means there's a bug in the front end and that the user is going to have a pretty bad time with that. So sometimes it's useful to understand like in the client, having the client input error in the schema can be useful to sort of understand hey, what's going to happen with like, what is the possibility space here or problem? So it's a good communication mechanism, but it doesn't necessarily result in errors that the front end will ever really show to an end user using the front end, right? Because that's not actionable, right? Like the fact that the front end encodes sent a string instead of an end is not actionable by the end user. So it's not useful for sort of rep error reporting for the end user. But this other category of client business errors are actually a lot more interesting. That's kind of a bigger domain, possibly, depending on the API, of course, but it takes it can take up a lot more of the error space. So client business errors, we, we put things in there that fundamentally basically means the client tried to do something and maybe it's like trying to link resources. So for example, with the mutation, when you're creating a database link, right? If the database is not reachable, Therefore, we reject the, the attempt to take this connection string. We reject that attempt to put that into your environment as a linked database because we couldn't reach the database. So did you make a typo? You know, there's all sorts of things that could, could be a problem there. That's a, that's a client business error. And basically, these kinds of errors, we say, maybe there's, like, there's some problem, right? So maybe the database is down. Maybe you just need to go and do some work uh, for five minutes and come back and try the query again. So the query itself may be actually like functioning and it, it may work in the future. The client business error has like many, many sort of specific subtypes, right? That would, for example, be database unreachable. And, and another one is like we integrate with GitHub. So there's various things that can go wrong when you're talking to GitHub and like, did the user, did they uninstall the Prisma app on GitHub from, or revoke access to the repository with the Prisma app, right? There's all sorts of weird things that can happen. And in those, again, the query might be okay, but at that point in time, there's some kind of error with the resources on maybe GitHub and they have to go do something. And so those are actually quite a bit more useful for the result type because we'll embed semantics and information in the schema about like a message, right? Um, and a specific kind of error, let's say for like the database being unreachable, maybe there's an error we got back from the database that's more specific about what's unreachable about it, what kind of network error happened. And we can kind of put that into our schema, right? That will like encode as much sort of specificity about that kind of error. Um, and you can't, so all this is beyond what you could ever achieve with a null. And so, and then with those sort of specifics, then the front end can pull that down. Like they can select those fields from the error types and they can potentially show that into like, you know, a little, some kind of modal or error message or, or whatever. Um, so those, those client business errors can potentially have value for, for end users of the app. The third category, unknown error. This is probably like the one where it's most legitimate to potentially just treat as the errors field in the JSON response of GraphQL, where it would just be a throw in the front end code. So if we have, like if AutoKit returns a 500 when we try to talk to GitHub or something, right? These potentially can be, these things that should never happen, right? It could happen that a repo is not found and that's a 404 or something. And that like might represent, you know, a client business error, but like we shouldn't get a 500. If we get a 500, something that sort of wasn't within the normal functioning of the system happened. And so this unknown error is sort of a catch-all for those other cases. So in the end, we choose to put nothing into the sort of the JSON error payload because we figure, well, we've got already client input error and client business errors. It's not really a stretch at this point to put the unknown errors there also. It doesn't really increase the, the workload for the front end to narrow the types in TypeScript and so on because they're already going to have to narrow it in the first place for, say, when they get the result, is it a, is it a client business error or did I actually get the, the success Right. So the, having the unknown errors becomes, I think it's not like a motivator for this pattern in the first place, but once you're already there, so far we've just decided to, to put it there. But uh, yeah, so we've been doing this since the beginning. So for this whole year, we've been doing this pattern. And so far we're happy with it. I think there is a bit of investment. Uh, and also I think it might, you know, it might get different levels of value here if you have a public API versus us with sort of a, you know, we have a, our own, just one front end app consuming the API that we control. But overall, we've, we've been happy with the pattern. It makes us think about errors in a much more like principled way. We model them. We think about what are the possible things that can go wrong in mutation. 
Uh, so we're not just writing code and be like, okay, it could throw. And, and the problem with throws, right, is that they don't show up in the type system of TypeScript. So like this, this way of thinking also, it, it infects also just programming languages in general. So some programming languages like Swift, right, they have optional types, Haskell and Scala. Like there's a lot of the programming languages that also take this approach of errors should be represented as data. But when you do that, and TypeScript is another beneficiary, if you treat errors as data in TypeScript, you know, you get that represented in the type system and you can be like, oh, I forgot to handle an error case. That's a lot harder with throw when you have like 50, you know, a call stack that's like 50 functions deep. And if you can throw errors in like six spots, some of the code you don't own, like it's, it's just way messier. So you end up with like kind of low confidence, try catches everywhere. And you're like, well, there's something could go wrong. I'm not quite sure what it would be. And, and just so I think the sort of the result field aspect from the API, but also if you go deeper into your own code base, I think it's a, it's a big confidence builder. But it is, it's a different style of coding. It does take, it does like change sometimes just throwing and, and like you have this beautiful, you know, everything looks like the code, like the happy paths. You don't have to have all these like branches and conditionals and say, is it an error if it, you know, so there's sort of some verbosity that goes along with this pattern. But for us, the type safety is, is a big part of our stack and testing strategy. Like we treat, we think of static types as part of our testing strategy. So we're, we're fine with that. That makes a ton of sense. So basically, use Prisma to get type safety for the database, use Nexus to get type safety for your graphical schema, and then use Nexus result field to get type safety for your errors as well and make sure that you're handling all the cases that could happen. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking briefly about on schema design, right? So this is strictly an area like teams can do this or not do this, right? And they're still equally using GraphQL. But where the community lands on, like, is this a good idea? Does it cause tooling problems? Because like, I think the newest version of Relay, for instance, has this at required uh, directive that's a client-side directive. I think it's, it's like very new. But it's an example where they have like some privileged features out of the box for nullability. And that's great. But we're looking at that and we're like, hmm, like, can we do something to help Relay? Can we teach Relay about what we're doing with errors? Um, is there a way we can kind of plug into there? So we're happy with how things have gone, but we also haven't like fully explored the sort of the tooling interop space here, right? I think there is some challenge to once you start putting errors in the schema, letting like other tools be aware that there's like that's how an error is represented is not the default. So you need to think about what the impact there is sort of downstream. That makes a ton of sense. That's really fascinating. I'm gonna have to try out this pattern now. I feel like I wanna use it. Now I'm sure we could go on for another hour, but it's been a while and we actually got to end the episode here. If we do a season three, I'm not going to commit us to anything yet before we've even done season two. We might have to get you back on to talk about the innovations that you have. If the first break is any indication in three years from now, where you will be with Prisma and uh, Nexus. It was great to have you on. If you have one thing that you would like every listener to do, you can plug one thing, whatever that is. I'm happy to, to make it anything that you want. You can plug one thing. What do you want every single listener try prisma <laughs> try prisma try prisma if you have it try prisma yeah prisma.io give it, give it i can only underline awesome. that <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic rm if you aren't using prisma yet you absolutely should be thank you for tuning in to graphical radio this was uh, season two episode two with jason kurt my name is max stoiber uh, my co-host is abby iron we'll see you in the next episode see ya thanks mm-hmm.